Hello, and welcome to the In Session Podcast. I'm your host, Alan Etzler, joined today in Annapolis by our state government reporter, Samantha Hogan. Samantha, how are you doing? Oh, it's good. You know, I, I, I keep saying it's good to be good in the, the studio with you guys, but it's actually nice to be here in Annapolis today. Yeah, and we are getting down to the wire here, um, and so... Uh, things are really, really jamming. Some of the big stuff has come up this week. Uh, but I want to go back to the very start of the week where you started your week was actually not necessarily in Annapolis. Well, maybe Monday, but on Tuesday you were in DC. Uh, tell us a little bit about the reason you were in DC and what you saw, uh, down there. Yeah, so I attended the Fair Maps rally that was hosted by the League of Women Voters and Common Cause outside of the U.S. Supreme Court on Tuesday. Um, This was a rally that was organized uh, to call for a national end to gerrymandering, which is when politicians uh, look at the voter demographics of an area in order to help shape those boundaries that they draw in order to lean either an area Democratic or Republican. And this has been the center of debate for at least four years here in Frederick County. As anyone who looks at the congressional maps would know, there is a strange little bubble Mm -hmm. that pops out of the sixth congressional district around um, the city of Frederick. And then the rest of Frederick County in the northern half is wrapped in a new 8th congressional district. So there has been a lawsuit since 2017, which is now on its second trip to the U.S. Supreme Court, um, essentially asking uh, for our highest justices in the country to weigh in on whether or not um, the General Assembly acted inappropriately when it drew its maps um, back in 2011. And so 2011 uh, definitely feels further away than uh, 2021, as weird as that is to say, which is probably the next time that we'll see our congressional maps drawn. So uh, there is just this little bit of controversy that we've we've discussed many a times um, here on In Session and in the Frederick News Post. Um, And so... Uh, Tuesday's rally was kind of a accumulation of all of those uh, debates and articles and opinion pieces that we've seen come out. And an interesting guest that showed up was uh, former California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Terminator or the (laughs) Governator himself. And uh, he called publicly for to, to terminate gerrymandering at this rally where Governor Larry Hogan also spoke and called uh, for nonpartisan redistricting commissions across the country, something that we see our democratically held house in the uh in the U.S. Congress also calling for this session. So coming from many different interesting sources, whether it's Arnold Schwarzenegger, Governor Hogan, or uh, some of our much more liberal members of the U.S. Congress, um, however, also something that people really can't seem to get on the same page about. It will be very interesting to see later this year whether or not the U.S. Supreme Court justices are going to get into the fray or if they're going to continue to punt on this. And I think we've discussed that at length, but I'm happy to go uh, more in depth into it if you want to. Right, right, for sure. I want to just kind of get, if you can give our listeners a vibe of what it was like down there, the number of people. uh, I mean, there were some photos that the people were uh, kind of dressed kind of funky, those bright colors. What what did you sense? What were the people saying? What were they talking about? And more importantly, we you mentioned the two guests, uh, the two kind of guest speakers in, in Hogan and Schwarzenegger. Both of them are from the Republican Party. Um, but this seems to be a little bit of a bipartisan deal for the most part. Did you get that vibe from the group who was kind of collectively gathering down there? Absolutely. Um, we see this as usually an issue raised by Republicans in Maryland because the map was potentially gerrymandered in favor of Democrats. But when we look at other states, such as North Carolina, who had two cases being heard at the U.S. Supreme Court also on Tuesday, um, and you look elsewhere in the in the country, often gerrymandering is something that is carried out by Republican 
um, governments. And so whether it's Wisconsin, whether it's North Carolina, whether it's many other states, we see this as a as a way to keep legacy politicians in power or a legacy party in power. So it was definitely a bipartisan issue outside of the U.S. Supreme Court. There were, you know, Maryland has a proximity advantage <laughs> to Washington, D.C., so there were definitely a lot of fired up Democratic um uh, people that are involved with the local League of Women Voters uh, chapters. Uh, you're you're referencing the the brightly dressed woman who had an American flag tied around her yeah. neck and a Uncle Sam hat on, and and there were colorful signs um, held by people asking to end gerrymandering now or the best way to add, uh, fix Congress and gerrymandering and and uh, colorful cutouts of some of the worst gerrymandered districts in the United in the United States and including Maryland's 4th Congressional District, which actually I don't think is the worst one. I do describe it in my story because it, it does have this very thin handlebar between mm-hmm. two lobes, essentially, that come out in either Prince George's County or Anne Arundel County. Um, but you, there are some really funky ones. I, I believe it's <laughs> District Number 1 in the center of uh, Maryland where you could almost miss it. It's so skinny and snakes in so many different direct. Actually, that's not one. One covers the Eastern Shore. I forget which one exactly I'm thinking of, but it's smack dab in the middle of uh, the state, and it is quite a squiggly one. So, um, you know, the, the the law, the court case only deals specifically with Maryland's 6th Congressional District, mm-hmm. which does bisect Frederick County. Um, but this is a statewide issue. This is a national issue, and people are really fired up about it. Um, there were a lot of speakers from both political parties that came down and spoke. Walter Olson, who's our local expert on redistricting, who works for the Cato Institute for Constitutional Studies was also down there. He served on Governor Larry Hogan's um, six, uh, the Emergency Commission on Sixth District Gerrymandering. So we've heard a lot from him in our paper. He and I have, have spoken on many occasions about, you know, not only Maryland's case, but also what the Supreme Court could do. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is not an issue that is Democratic or Republican. It's really both. What What is the vibe that you get from the people there in terms of do they want the Supreme Court to take this up? I assume the people in, in North Carolina and other states do because they don't have this commission here, you know, doing an emergency redraw. But what about the people in Maryland? We have this commission. They've they've developed a map. We'll get to this later, but it's it's moved forward now. Do they want the Supreme Court to make a ruling on this? And, and why would that be? Well, I always hesitate to give a unilateral what people want because right. no one really wants exactly the same thing. But I do think that there is wide interest in the U.S. Supreme Court handing down a decision. I also think there is broad skepticism that that is going to happen, either with Maryland's case or North Carolina's case that it just heard. I think quite often we see them not going that far out on a limb when it comes to something that has to so intricately do with state rights and uh, a state's ability to draw its congressional districts. It would be a big step. I mean, it would be one of those landmark cases that we would point to for in our history books if we did see the Supreme Court ultimately hand down a ruling on redistricting or the limits on what states can do in regards to redistricting. You don't see those, you know, more than once or twice in in a lifetime, you know, and so we've seen the Supreme Court move on gay marriage. Um, But think of all those legacy decisions that came before us with Roe v. Wade and uh, Brown v. Board of Education, you know, something of this magnitude would probably be something that we are going to be talking about in decades to come. So whether or not that's really going to come out of the Supreme Court now, it's really hard to say. Right, right. Well, we're certainly going to keep an eye on it. I, I want to move on briefly because we're going to come back to the gerrymandering discussion. But it was, uh, I don't know if it was a surprise to you down there. It was a little bit of a surprise to us who have been here in the newsroom and kind of seen this bill develop. But I want to talk about the End of Life Option Act, um, also known as the Aid in Dying Act, um, uh, assisted suicide, whatever it is that you that people want to term it. it, it it's this... Uh, bill that was um, aiming to give people the right who, if they have terminal illnesses and will die, I believe, within six months, you can correct me if I'm wrong, the opportunity uh, to have essentially a, a um, 
consider it a, a just be able to to die um, kind of peacefully rather than you know have that disease take take their end the end of their life from them in, in a painful manner. Um, this bill failed in the in the Senate, and so I want you to tell uh, tell us a little bit about what it was like down there for you. Was that a surprise to you? Uh, it seemed to kind of be moving through first and second reader without much discussion, but I do know at the beginning of session we thought it would be pretty controversial. Yeah, so in broad strokes, you got the, the, the idea of the bill pretty much correct. So this is only for individuals who have a terminal illness who two doctors have determined is most likely going to die within the next six months due to their illness and then would be able to prescribe that individual after a series of oral and written requests to uh, uh, essentially a two medications that would allow them to then self-administer in their home or wherever they should so choose um, to have a a painless or a less painful passage um, into death. And so this bill, uh, kind of surprisingly, I'm not going to lie, um, ended locked in a tie of 23 to 23 um, in the Senate. And so judicial proceedings, which is the committee that has been in charge of this bill in the Senate, had widely changed it before it eventually advanced to the full Senate. And what it had tried to do was add protections against coercion, and it had also stripped doctors who prescribed the medication used in aid in dying of a good faith immunity from criminal charges. Because Chairman Bobby Zirkin of Baltimore had said that he absolutely would not vote for a bill that had this good faith provision in it, which we don't allocate to other, you know, high risk physicians in emergency rooms or in high-risk um, OBGYN cases. So so there had been some substantial changes to this bill, potentially to make it more palatable. But really, you know, this, uh, this hits at uh, people's both morals and ethics and just where they want to stand on an issue. And so uh, it got locked in at 23 to 23, and that should not have happened. That's why this is kind of a surprise, because there are enough members of the Senate to not have a tie. Mm -hmm. And we saw one uh, senator ultimately opt not to cast a vote. And because procedurally... They called the tally um, before people could explain their votes. No one could call on that senator and mm. ask him to cast a vote. So what ultimately happened is is they locked into a tie. And procedurally, if there's no majority, then no one can call for a recount of the vote because it, usually if you're on the, I believe, the losing side of the vote, you can – or. I would have to go back and look at the Senate's rules, but there is a way that you can call for a second vote or for a vote to be reconsidered. But when there's no majority or no minority, you you can't do that. So the tie functionally has killed the bill. It has absolutely defeated it. And so that in itself was surprising. It actually hung up a bunch of the journalists in the room because they weren't saying whether or not the bill had failed or would pass or what was going to happen next. And um, it was definitely a shock, though I don't think it was such a shock when you look at it in a much broader context, because this is a bill, as I said, that really gets down to a moral and ethical question for a lot of members of both the House of Delegates and for the Senate. So um, they knew it was going to be close. I don't think they expected it to be a tie. I want to talk a little bit about this good faith immunity from criminal charges. Can you explain to the listeners what and, and myself for that matter what exactly that would mean and then what senator zirkin uh would have preferred over that so i think it's important to put this maybe in a little bit of a broader context so this is something that uh senator michael huff brought up repeatedly in judicial proceedings which is the idea that maryland law already prohibits physician-assisted suicide, which says that a doctor may not prescribe medication that they know a person is going to use to commit suicide or they themselves cannot administer something that would kill the individual. There is latitude to provide medication such as morphine, which is a, is a pain-killing drug, in order, in order to alleviate pain 
even if it may hasten death. But that's the difference. It cannot it cannot be to cause death, but you are you're given latitude to administer medication to alleviate pain, even if it would hasten death. Um, or ultimately lead to death. But you can't do it with the express purpose to kill the individual. And so because we have that on the books, then if we look separately at good faith immunity, essentially what good faith immunity means, and I'm not a lawyer, Bobby Zirkin is, Senator Zirkin is, um, but it would have essentially said that if the doctor had messed this up, that they couldn't be sued. Or that if a family didn't know that their parent was requesting this uh, process and then wanted to file charges for negligence or some other legal standing, you know, couldn't be charged for, for criminal. And this, I think the issue that a lot of the senators had with the good faith immunity is is that doctors come to the senate every single year asking for a good faith immunity whether they're those er doctors or their uh labor and delivery doctors who you know are at risk of malpractice lawsuits because of high-risk births um and and the senate has not granted those immunity those same immunity protections and uh uh chairman zirkin said that he would be more inclined to give um good faith immunity to those kinds of doctors than to the individuals who are assisting with aid in dying because he almost thought that they needed to be held to a higher standard than some of these other doctors just because not so much of the risk of coercion, but just the idea of coercion in this process and just really trying to eliminate any possible way that people could be coerced into ultimately deciding to end their lives early. Um, the aid and dying bill is meant to be a way for people to avoid the greatest amount of suffering and pain at the end of their life and to give them dignity in their final hours and to have autonomy and control over over when their lives end. That is how the advocates present it. But when you look at all the legalities of it, that's that's where these good faith arguments, the coercion, the, you know, process, that's where we, physician-assisted suicide already on the books, you know, that that's where we get into the sticky gray areas. And that's, you know, that's where this bill ultimately was defeated. Do you think, or maybe, you know, maybe somebody's planning to bring this up next year. Do you, do you think it comes back up and do you think it passes next year? Do you think we're moving in this direction where maybe it didn't happen this year, but aid in dying is kind of inevitable? So if you ask Senator Michael Huff, who's very opposed to this bill and has seen it come up on many sessions, he would say it got voted down in the Senate this year. You can't get enough votes. It was very close in the House. Just don't bring it back this term. Don't bring it back up for another, you know, the next three sessions that the individuals in office now um, are sitting. They, you know, their minds won't change in the next three years. So that no one should bring it back up. However, Compassion and Choices, which is the main advocacy organization that has been working on the end of life bill, um, says that they absolutely think that Maryland is very close to finding consensus on this and that they sound like they're probably going to be coming back with legislation next year. 2019 was a pretty significant year for this bill just because it was the first time that it ever made it out of committee Mm -hmm. in either chamber. And the fact that it did pass in the House and got pretty close to, you know, for a serious vote in, in the Senate... I mean, it's a sign of the pendulum definitely swinging, uh, swinging more in favor of this. But it, it's definitely a hiccup um, in the Senate getting locked into this tie that leaves some uncertainty in where this bill would stand next year. Right. And I wonder if it would pass uh, what the governor would say. I want to transition into our next uh topic, which is what the governor said about some bills in this session. Uh, We got our first vetoes of the session, and there were uh, three of them, right? Can you tell us about each bill that uh, Governor Hogan decided to veto Wednesday? 
So perhaps uh, unsurprisingly, on the chopping block on Wednesday in Governor's selection of vetoes was the minimum wage bill that passed both the House and Senate. Um, so he had decided to veto both of versions of the bill, which raises Maryland's minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2025, with a slightly slower phase in process for businesses with less than 14 employees. Um, the legislator turned around in less than 12 hours and had overridden his veto. A veto override requires three-fifths of the uh, members uh, to support the legislation over the veto. Uh, they got a pretty clear uh, majority in support of the $15 minimum wage in the House and the Senate. So that was a, that breezed right through. Probably unsurprising as well, um, Governor Larry Hogan vetoed a bill that would allow local school systems to set their own start date. Um, in 2016, he issued an executive order that said that schools had to start after Labor Day. And so he has pretty viciously attacked the legislator for, uh, legislature uh, for trying to reverse course on this, on what he sees and, and has pulled in the past as a very popular um, executive order, kind of giving more clarity to families on when the end of summer is, giving businesses some added boost in an extra weekend um, to uh, essentially see families at the shore and, you know, to just see a tourism in action. However, um, the Senate um, decided to override the veto on Thursday, and then it was taken up by the House today on Friday, and it passed in both chambers. So it would appear that local school systems are going to be able to pick that start date um, for themselves again. And then finally, something that we really haven't touched on but definitely something that our longtime listeners are going to be more familiar with um, in regards to the comptroller's involvement in uh, alcohol legislation. And uh, so there was a bill this session to essentially strip alcohol and tobacco oversight out of the comptroller's office and move it underneath the executive branch, which would be uh, would appoint a commission to oversee this. This is kind of a model that we've seen in other states, uh, but not completely. It definitely still has its own nuance. Maryland's model of having a comptroller um, is also uh, different, as Senate President Mike Miller uh, gave as a nice history lesson uh, during the override vote. So uh, the House and Senate did both decide on Thursday to move forward with the legislation to override the governor's veto and to strip the comptroller of his power to oversee alcohol and tobacco regulation and enforcement. So the, was it a surprise at how swiftly these overrides came? It wasn't no, even it's not hours. because you got to look at the votes that occurred in the first place. There was more than three fifths original support for the legislation, and that's about sixty uh, percent uh, of a of a body. So when you have wide sweeping support for a bill already on the you know the first you know hurdle of getting it passed, a lot of those votes aren't going to change. And the veto is a check on the General Assembly, but the override is also a check on the governor. So, um, you know, it was a surprise when at five o'clock he announced yeah. <laughs> um, those vetoes that sent a couple of us scrambling, me for sure. Um, but, you know, it wasn't surprising to see the the lawmakers actually turn around on Thursday and, and, and vote to move forward with some of these. $15 minimum wage was particularly not surprising for to see people um, not back down on because that was announced at the beginning of session as the Democratic caucus's uh, major priority. So... No, I mean, I think it's a little ironic, you know, headlines one day, Hogan vetoes, mm -hmm. and then the next day, lawmakers override veto. So uh, it just, it's just what happens when you have a Democratic majority in, in both chambers, and then you have a Republican governor. Right, yeah, I was going to say the, the veto is, is, you know, barely a symbolic gesture more than, more than anything, uh, but I, I was... I was I guess I personally was surprised that they just turned around the next day and were like, "No, we're going to do this." And uh, so, you know, uh, some of those some of those bills, though, I, I think, especially for Frederick, uh, with the school start date, I know I know the Board of Education uh, has really wanted that. So I, I think Frederick is uh, getting kind of what it wanted uh, with some of that. 
I want to move. And ironically, actually, no, I just want to say one more yeah. thing. Ironically, uh, Frederick County's classic fair day and its schedule was brought up as a reason why local control should be uh, considered right. uh, when it comes to shaping a calendar. So I know that you've sat in on the Board of Education on several occasions when they've tried to balance uh, Jewish holidays, Christian holidays, fair day, spring break. Right. Uh, I don't know if you have any insight on how might this might help the Board of education. Yeah, I, I know. I mean, Frederick County is is unique in that sense in, in the importance we place on um, our agricultural history. And uh, the board kind of famously calls the the fair like Frederick's outdoor classroom, biggest outdoor classroom because of all the students that get to go there. And so fair day is hugely important to them. Um, and so I, I know just having that extra day and not having to pack it in to, you know, not having to pack in 180 days in basically uh, 190 days on a calendar or whatever they have is uh, going to make it much easier for them. Um, And and I think, you know, Brad Young puts it puts it pretty succinctly. And I I think it it makes sense. Either the state legislature can build the whole calendar or don't touch the calendar. But the the influence that they had on it made things very, very difficult for each local jurisdiction. And so I, I know they're probably singing praises that they're able to rebuild this calendar. I just wonder, because they, the calendar is, building the calendar is essentially a year-long uh, process for a lot of jurisdictions. I wonder how many are too far into the process to just kind of tear it down and start again, or, or what will happen and when... Uh, especially our board of education, since this is, you know, this is what we cover, Frederick County. I, I wonder if they're going to start from scratch and and build a calendar the, the way that they originally wanted, or just go with what they've already been building. And that is some of the questions actually I was left lingering with after today's uh, vote, which was how will this affect maybe even the the fall of 2019? I don't. Mm-hmm. The bill goes into effect on July 1st of this year. So hypothetically, that is before Labor Day, but I don't know if the Board of Education is going to feel comfortable putting all its eggs in one basket saying, oh, we can definitely start before Labor Day and not know politically what might go down, especially since the governor has said that he wants to put this to a petition of referendum amongst the public who, you know, may want to wait until a November ballot to to say whether or not they approve of a pre-Labor Day start. So I think that we still have questions to answer. The governor has had his say, the General Assembly has had his say, and I think now we're going to hear what the public has to say about mm-hmm. it. And I know that there, I'm pretty sure there's still a survey going on by the Frederick County Board of Education um, asking for input on on what kind of days should be prioritized in the calendar. Our uh, our reporter Wyatt Massey wrote about that, I believe, last week. Um, if people wanted to follow back up with that and have their voices heard, are you surprised? That something that seems, and maybe this is just it seems this way to me. Something that seems so trivial as a as a school calendar has caused such an uproar uh, in politics amongst residents just across the state in general. Is this surprising to you? Well, you know, a lot surprises me, and a lot doesn't <laughs> surprise me. <laughs> a very political answer, uh, Samantha. <laughs> yes, I. Someone in the House of Delegates today put it very well, and I I am unfortunately drawing a blank on who it was. They said, this is not a personal question. This is a question of the appropriate use of executive power and whether or not we are comfortable with our highest position in the state having such deep and intimate control over such a deeply intimate local issue and what kind of precedent it sets. And so I think that we could think of this in many other lights where if the governor, any governor, Democratic or Republican, decided to issue an executive order that would have such a direct local impact and whether we would be okay with that. 
or whether these decisions are better left to local officials dealing with local issues, local concerns, local priorities. So the, the problem we, for the, the problem yeah, for go this ahead. De, the problem for this delegate, this particular delegate, was more so with the executive order than it was with the calendar itself. Correct, because okay. it's, the calendar is such a local issue, and then the executive order is such a reach of power by the highest office in the state. That hmm. I, that stuck with me. That definitely stuck with me. Yeah, that's an interesting argument. I, I hadn't I hadn't heard. Um, that yet i mean all, all you hear is kind of the bluster of both sides so that w- that's a pretty nuanced argument and, and an interesting take i, I want to move on though because we, we talked about gerrymandering early earlier on and i mentioned that it had moved forward and this feels very late in the process but uh we did have a bill kind of hit the floor uh regarding the sixth congressional district can you tell us what the, what that will do Yeah, so some of our readers may have seen yesterday, we reported that the minority leader in the Senate had introduced legislation that would implement the proposed map from the Emergency Commission on Sixth District Gerrymandering, which you have probably seen from our reporting or my reporting, uh, would redraw the sixth and eighth congressional districts. That would return Frederick County completely to the sixth district, along with Western Maryland, a portion of Southern Carroll County, and Northwestern Montgomery County. Now, um, I also can confirm now that uh, the House Minority Leader also introduced legislation on uh, Thursday for the exact same thing. So now we have bills moving in two separate directions. One's going to start in the House Rules Committee. One's going to start in the Senate Rules Committee. And they're going to be decided whether or not they're going to be assigned to um, a standing committee in the House and Senate. Uh, We're maybe going to rush through a bill hearing. We're going to potentially push through a vote in committee in this final week. And then we're going to try and get it onto the Senate uh, Senate and House (laughs) floors, I'm guessing, is the ultimate goal. Some major foot on the brakes to consider of this, though, is that Democratic majorities are held in every single committee and in both chambers. And the Democratic majorities have not picked up any of Governor Larry Hogan's nonpartisan redistricting legislation in the Senate, and the House explicitly voted it down in committee. So whether or not they're going to treat this map issue in this court order differently than they treat more broad sweeping legislation Mm -hmm. is something that kind of keeps me up at night i'm not (laughs) sure how this is gonna how this is gonna play out because there has also been talk of special sessions Mm -hmm. so we then the next week is technically the last full week of session and then lawmakers are going to come back on monday which is affectionately known as signy die and the in the session the 90 day session ends but <laughs> if there is an issue of of grave concern for the governor he can call a special session and whether or not this redistricting issue particularly a three judge panel's decision that said that maryland needed to redraw its sixth congressional district otherwise it would assign a committee to uh, redraw it for it ahead of the 2020 election we're kind of playing a game of russian roulette with the federal court now some people could say oh we're still waiting on the u.s supreme court to issue their decision which may come out in june or or we have to move forward with this legislation. There's so many question marks hanging up in the air um, about this. I did get a chance to read the bills um, that the minority leaders introduced in the chambers. It is solely laying out what counties and census tracts are to be um, designated into the new counties. Uh, sorry, in, whoo, into the new congressional districts. Not making new counties over here. New congressional districts. <laughs> and I know, right? And cool. one interesting... One interesting thing um, I did hear um, at the very end of the Senate's uh, gathering today on Friday was that the Senate Rules Committee did not have a quorum at its uh, rules meeting on Thursday, which I don't know if that has, you know, already started the delay Mm -hmm. of the Senate's version of this map bill, um, whether or not they were going to take it up that day or uh, the same day as introduction or not. Um, It's a huge time crunch. I don't want to under sell that to people. 
we've kind of been writing about this as if it's a given that Frederick County is going to return to the 6th District for the 2020 election, but that is something that lawmakers are not guaranteeing to the public. We are not guaranteed a less gerrymandered 6th and 8th District uh, for the next presidential election, and that's pretty significant. Yeah, this this is just the biggest cluster. (laughs) (laughs) This is just such a it is so all over the place in such a winding path i mean i hope for you at some point we get a resolution right <laughs> i know i might we might be in session for much longer than we think we were going to be and that will definitely be interesting i mean it would not be the first time that maryland has called a special session mm-hmm. however it is such a controversial issue that we you know just have such diametrically opposed Uh, General Assembly members and the governor on either sides of these issues. So uh, really your guess or anyone's guess is as good as mine at this point on what is going to happen. This is something we're going to be tracking very closely for readers. I know it's very important to a lot of voters um, to see a resolution to this, but unfortunately we just don't know what that's going to look like at this time. Did I ask you last week to pick what you think is going to happen? You have to pick. So my pick has been from literally the week before session began and we were writing about the emergency commission. I called it then that we were going to have to go into special session in order to deal with this map. And that is still where I think that we are. I do not think it will be resolved before signee die. And I think the governor will call the General Assembly in specifically to look at redistricting. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay, I want to. We've talked a lot about the governor. I want to move on because he did have a meeting, kind of a closed door deal. Uh, I don't know how much you, you know about it, but he he had a meeting today with our congressional leaders. Um, can you tell us a little bit of what went on in that meeting? I, I know you might not have been in there, but. No, so no one was allowed inside the meeting, um, but uh, Governor Hogan did sit down with all of the elected congressional representatives. Um, I wanted to get a question in about redistricting and how far he was going to push in, what he was prepared to do if the General Assembly did not ask swiftly. But unfortunately, there are a lot of high profile things (laughs) happening in Maryland right now, and I wasn't able to squeeze in my uh, question. So all I really have is what Senator Cardin uh, shared afterwards, which is that there is going to be some positive movement on the BW Parkway. Um, Anyone that maybe commutes in from that direction will be happy to know that there is plans to begin pothole work and uh, resurfacing very soon on there. Uh, The governor has really been pushing for the federal government to relinquish control of the BW Parkway, to give it to Maryland, and to let it better control its infrastructure. As many people know, it's also known as I-495, which is connected to I-270 which is a part of a very large project that the governor has proposed to expand lanes, potentially add tolls, potentially have a public-private partnership uh, with a pretty hefty price tag. There has been uh, legislation about requiring a police uh, pre-solicitation report that could delay it by one or two years, um, you know, and just many other pushbacks on whether this was the correct environmental decision. Hogan would say, if you have cars moving, they're not idling, they're not as polluting as uh, cars stuck in traffic. Some people say, well, maybe we should be having um, better uh, mass transit, which is more environmental. Well, we have the mark right now. It doesn't run on time, so people don't use it. So, you know, there, there's there's these layered, layered questions about it. But if you're concerned about the uh, potholes, if you're concerned about the surface of the BW Parkway, that is coming soon. Uh, and then... Uh, We also did hear that they are hoping to uh, convince the U.S. Congress to allocate $90 million to the Chesapeake Bay, which they have been cleaning up uh, for, gosh, uh, pushing a decade at this point. And currently, the funding levels are $73 million. President Donald Trump, on several occasions, on multiple years, has tried to cut uh, funding for the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, They've been able to keep it at $73 million. They're wanting to see an increase uh, in the upcoming budget. So that would be definitely something that a lot of Marylanders and people that enjoy crabs uh, would be interested in uh, seeing. (laughs) 
Right. And so I want to quick question on the Chesapeake Bay funding. When when we talk about that number, that 90 million, does that all go to bay specific cleanup or does it go to tributaries that flow out into the bay too? Like would that include uh money to clean up parts of the Potomac River or something that that flows out into the into the Chesapeake Bay eventually? Yeah, so when we talk about the Chesapeake Bay, we've got to talk about the Chesapeake Bay watershed, mm-hmm. which in 2010, the watershed entered a multi-state and jurisdiction because the District of Columbia is a party to this um, cleanup agreement. And I, some of our readers, if they're environmentally inclined, may have read some of my previous reporting on this, and I won't dive too deeply into it. Um, but when we when we look at ninety million dollars, we're really talking about a lot more than just the the body of water, which proportional to its watershed is very tiny. Um, and so, you know, this is going to affect farmers through throughout the state, throughout the region. This is going to affect the Conowingo Dam. This is going to affect so many layered um, and different industries that go into our water quality, whether that's experienced locally, regionally, or in the Chesapeake Bay itself. Um, Eutrophication, which is when you have too much nutrients in the water and causes um, algae blooms, which hurts our oysters, which hurt our crabs, which hurt our fish. You know, that's what we're trying to prevent. We're trying to clean the bay so that it has a robust ecosystem, supports robust um, fishing, oystering, crabbing industries, and, uh, you know, supports robust port industries. So we're talking about so many different facets and so many different industries and so many local, regional, and national um, programs when we talk about those $90 million. So really, it's a drop in the bucket um, when we're when we're looking at the, the big scale, big scope of the Chesapeake Bay. Right. And, and I think the, the one advantage they may have, and, and you know, it's, it's hard to tell what, what Trump or, or Congress will end up doing, but the, the one advantage they have is, is that these efforts have paid off in a lot of ways. Now, the Chesapeake Bay and the watershed still has a lot to go to be you know, fully healthy, but but there have been reports that it's at its healthiest in a long, long time. And I, I think that's right. Actually, we just saw that just coming out this week. I I really would love to dive into those reports. I've unfortunately been caught up in bills um, <laughs> instead of at our general assembly. But that is definitely something that we're going to be following up on readers with as well. Is that just we are seeing um, strides? We are seeing improvements in the bay. Um, this has been money well invested. Uh, this has also been something that I have been invested in literally since college um, when I started looking into this cleanup. It's really a revolutionary and one-of-a-kind um, multi-state compact, and it is paying off. Right, right. I do I do want to move on. We have one more uh, environmental issue to talk about, and that's uh, what you've spent a lot of your day on today is, is regarding this pesticide that I can't pronounce the name of. Yeah, chlorpifros or chlorpifros. Um, we do have an update for everyone. This is like hot off the presses, uh, not even on the press yet because I haven't typed it up. <laughs> but the Senate Education, Health, and Environmental Affairs Committee voted today six to five in favor of a ban of the pesticide, which is used um, in orchards and on crops um, and on pre-treated vegetable seeds um, in Maryland right now. Um, there is a federal law um, regarding uh, the use of chlorpyphorols nationally. Um, That has gone to court very recently. We don't have a decision yet. Um, But this is something that has stretched on for over a decade um, and something that uh, has now seen two, if not three, presidential administrations. um, And it's something that is highly controversial. Um, You have the advocates in support of the ban saying that um, chlorpyphoros are a neurotoxin, um, which is getting into the water and is very bad for uh, fetuses and for very young children that are exposed to it and cannot uh, uh, break down the the pesticide. Um, And then you have farmers saying that it is a 
very necessary tool in their toolbox uh, against pests, uh, particularly in the orchards. We see the peach tree borer, um, which cannot uh, be treated by any other pesticide, uh, some farmers are saying now, and that um, really is something that they'll have to treat with massive amounts of other pesticides in order to control. And so we do have one farmer who serves on the Education, Health, and Environmental Affairs Committee, Senator Gallion, who uh, requested that the bill be turned into a study rather than a ban. Um, that ultimately failed. He then requests that a waiver system that the House um put into its version of the bill before it passed the full chamber. Um, that waiver system through the Department of Agriculture uh, would be good through 2030 rather than 2022 as it's currently written into the bill. That also failed. I think we're going to see a very robust debate of this in the Senate um, next week uh, when it finally moves into there. I expect that we'll see a fair amount of amendments whether or not the, uh, the Senate can keep amendments off the bill so that it stays identical to the House bill um, and doesn't need to go back to the House for a second vote is very unclear. I think this is another bill that's going to get down to the wire on sine die and will be very close on whether or not it's going to pass or not. That's interesting. I I um I honestly don't know much about this. But what is the what is the Farm Bureau kind of what is their stance and why are they fighting so hard on this? Yeah, so the Maryland Farm Bureau has fought this for multiple years when it's come up in the legislature, and they essentially are arguing it's it's that tool of last defense uh, for farm uh, for farmers who have difficult pests, and that it would also put farmers at a competitive disadvantage to those in neighboring states who would continue to be allowed to use this pesticide. Now, it's interesting they think that this issue should be handled at the federal level because that's where we see pesticide um, assessment of safety and labeling occur. You know, they, <laughs> they're they pushing for a state level solution when it comes to milk labeling in order to get the federal, in order to get the federal policymakers to act. But they're mm -hmm. almost asking now for a slightly different approach, which is to wait and let federal policy holders act. Ultimately, they want they want federal issues to be handled at the federal level, but their level of how the state should nudge federal uh, federal rulemakers, you know, is a little bit different in those two cases. Um, but really, they think that Maryland farmers would be at a competitive disadvantage in that, um, to quote Col Colby Ferguson, who's their government relations individual, it delays doomsday for two years um, when you... Uh, have a waiver system that only goes to 2022, um, I definitely think we're going to see some kind of amendment to uh, extend that waiver, come back up in the Senate, and we're going to see, you know, some heartened um, uh, mention, mentioning of farmers in this debate. Mm -hmm. And this would also, though, apply to like landscapers and golf courses that use this currently on their turf grass. So I don't want to pretend that it's just farmers, but it is farmers who have been very vocally against this. Is, is there an alternative to this pesticide to get the desired well, it's, effect? Well, it, it depends on how you look at it. So you can use neonicotoids, um, which uh, neonics, as they're sometimes called, or um, pyrethrins, um, potentially on some of these pests. But I've been told that you would have to use them in higher quantities. And so when when I spoke to a local orchard owner, he was telling me he was using chlorpiferose during the dormant period um, of the tree when there's no buds, there's no fruit. It's just using it on the trunk because the peach tree bore goes into the actual bark of the tree. And unless you're standing there with a knife ready to chop it up as it crawls out, it's going to kill your tree. Hmm. Now, if he were to use some of these other pesticides, he potentially risks killing some of his other very good insects that will be present during the appropriate time to apply those or you know potentially there there's going to be bud push at that point and you're when you're talking about neonics there has been some concern about colony collapse disorder in bees and its wide use so you know nothing is a perfect solution when when the senate committee took their vote there is some concern you know we need chemicals or some chemicals in order to feed people. You know, it's just, 
we're at a point where we have some very resistant pests and we have some very uh, resistant weeds um, out there in in nature because partially due to chemicals, partially due to natural selection, and so partially due to invasive species and just how our international commerce. So it's a very emotional issue for farmers and for people that are trying to look out for the health of children. Um, And, you know, I've read through some of the EPA's uh, health risk assessment report from 2014 and 2016 when they looked at this showing a connection between neurotoxic effects in very young children and exposure to chloropyphoros. And, you know, that's why it's being litigated as well as considered as state bans. Um, and it's going to be it's going to be a difficult choice for the our lawmakers to decide. And so I, I can uh, you mentioned we kind of expect that to come up next week. And I, I want to get you out of here because you still have writing to do and it's six o'clock on a Friday. Uh, but but what can we expect next week is the last week that we we have the last full week, at least of, of session. Yeah, so we Hopefully. still don't have a resolution on the Clean Energy Jobs Acts in the House. Chlorpiferos is going to be uh, debated in the Senate. Believe it or not, styrofoam and polystyrene, plastic foam, is going to have to come back up in both chambers again because there was a last-minute, small, non-consequential amendment that was made to it just to clarify um, about what kind of styrofoam pack, when styrofoam packaging can be introduced into the system. Um, and who can still use it. Uh, so that has to go through both chambers again. And then obviously we're going to be following this redistricting bill, seeing if it makes movement in either chamber um, and how motivated lawmakers are to see a conclusion to this. Awesome. So uh, fingers crossed that it will be the last full week because if not, that means we went into a, a bad ec- uh, extra session. Uh, so that's that would not be good. But what should, seem, what should we call the podcast? Might what should we yeah. <laughs> What should we call the podcast? Is it like special in session or in session parentheses in, special? <laughs> in in session plus one plus one week plus one plus one week. I don't know. We might not be one week. We could That's be talking true. longer than that. Uh, That's true. Gosh, yeah, we'll I have to think not. about that. We'll have to think about how we're gonna call a special session in session. <laughs> you know, it it would be much easier if they if they didn't cram all of their governing into 90 days, but I guess that's a topic for another day. Yes, that is definitely a topic <laughs> for another day. All well, right, anyway, um, lots of us, uh, lots of stuff to still watch out for. So we'll be back with you guys next week to see, uh, to check in before signy die. And then we'll see ultimately what lawmakers say yes to and what they say no to. Awesome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.